This is going to be um, one of those, what, I, what I've always called potpourri sermons because it's not going to flow perfectly by design. There's just two or three things I want to put together that don't fit anywhere else, but it requires a slide. And I got back there tonight and realized mine was caught in draft, and I don't know why it didn't send on to him. So I went back to the office real quick and sent it to him. I'm going to give him a couple seconds here to, to get that thing back up there. But I, I, I don't know. I wasn't here for announcements. Did you announce uh, that Jack Wills was baptized? This morning after services, just shortly after everybody left, uh, Jason comes up and says, eh, can you put a hold on your lunch plans? Jack wants to be baptized. And so we baptized him this morning right after services. I don't, are you, is, he, is he here? Okay, I made it. He had to come up here and be humiliated in all that whole circle. Now he's being humiliated back there. So can we hear an amen for, for what he did this morning? It's a great thing. We got a new brother. Yeah. Yeah, feel free to do that. I'm not embarrassing you anymore. I'm not going to do it, but it was a beautiful thing, and I love that family. They have a strong Kennett connection, so I knew his grandparents uh, very, very well. I know his grandparents very, very well, and grateful. I know that they are. Uh, for what happened. So we celebrate that. We're going to be um, in a few different places, um, but the first, first couple of things are like stuff that you, you get from some place that I just want to share with people, but it doesn't fit anywhere in any point in any sermon or whatever, so I'm just going to kind of throw it up on you. You know how that goes? Uh, so the first one is um, uh, Janine Lynch was traveling. She travels a lot for a job, and she'd send me this picture. She says, I'm sorry to tell you you're not the only one the church on the hill, and she sent me some pictures of another one that's a church on the hill, and I think if Paul's got it, it's right here. Maybe. In just a second. And maybe God doesn't like that church and just says, let's obliterate it right now. Do the... Jeopardy signal. While, he, while he's doing that, you'll see that picture here in a second. Uh, I was in the office the other day, and uh, I was sitting there reading, and I got this eerie feeling I was being watched. You ever have that feeling? Kind of hair on the back of your head kind of goes up, and something wasn't right. And I was sitting there, and I was reading this book pretty carefully, and I just kept, just got this weird sense, and I looked up, and something just, just wasn't right. Here's, here's a church. Here's the picture of it. She sent me this on her phone, and it says, we're not the only one. There's another church on the hill. And I, I immediately thought, can we sue or something like that? But uh, I, I'm, this, this looks more like maybe uh, a molehill to me. Um, so it doesn't feel like a real threat. And I didn't feel like suing was important. But I appreciated her going, you know what? There's another one and clicking a picture and sending it back. And I'm, I'm just kind of comparing and thinking we have no threat. This, this next one is, uh, so I'm sitting in my office and I'm thinking I'm being watched. I looked up and something wasn't right. You know how... You, you, you've got familiar surroundings that you're used to all the time, and you're so used to it that you don't even look at it anymore, but something was out of place. And I looked up, and there were two picture directory pictures, 8 by 10, fully framed, Becky Mulholland and Dana Hayes, on three shelves up, staring at me, and there's an angelic light behind them that's kind of flashing toward me. Let's see if you can see this picture. I forgot it on there. So I took a picture of it so you could see what I saw that day. Is it on here? We're seeing just how good Paul Thornton is here. Because these are just like random stuff that, that he's got to apply there. You'll see that in just a second. And, and so there I am, blessed in the middle of a day with a wonderful church directory picture, 8 by 10 of these two 
young ladies. Um, third one, uh, this past week, if something happens at, uh, that the, the one who's in charge of the villa, St. Bernard's Villa, has to go away, they put Bill Barry in charge. Uh, and so he has never gone away. The guy just never goes away. And uh, here's one of them. There should be two or three others. I want you to see what he does. Now, I, I, there's one where they, uh, yeah, but anyway, so the guy leaves. He goes on a business trip, and they put Bill Barry in charge of running the whole villa. And they put him in a special hat, and they put him behind the desk, and he'll put his feet up on the desk, and they send the picture to the boss and say, just stay gone for a couple weeks. Things are in good hands, right? And so he's got one video with him doing a dance. I don't want to show that because just I don't want to show it. Uh, but uh, th there are other pictures on here of him sitting with his feet up, and he's got like a, it looks like a champagne bottle, but I think it's like grape juice. But anyway, so, so that happened this week. I just thought I'd share it with you. It's worth, it's worth saying. Then I thought I was going to put another picture on here, and that was um, I was going to put a video of what a turtle sounds like. Uh, so I'm sitting at a funeral, I've told you this before, and, and there is Shirley Smith sitting next to me, and somewhere down here is Terry Smith down there, but the preacher that's preaching the, the funeral keeps quoting Song of Solomon chapter 2, the voice of the turtle says, come forth, the voice of the turtle, and after he says that a time or two, Shirley whispers to me, what in the world does the voice of a turtle sound like? I thought, well, I'm going to look that up, and I'm going to share that on a Sunday night. Every video was of turtles mating, and I just don't want to, I just didn't feel like I could show that, uh, but there was one that, that, that did, it was the sound of them normal, just kind of walking around and doing, but there was so much video to it, I couldn't count across, but I want you to know, a turtle does make a noise, but that's the King James version. It's really supposed to be turtle dove. And so it doesn't really matter anyway, so I didn't make a slide. I'm sure you're thankful for that. Um, there's that, yeah. Imagine looking up in the middle of the day, seeing these two ladies staring down at you like this, right? Just made the day complete somehow. I think it's still there. Uh, but anyway, they wanted to know how long it took me to discover it, and it took about uh, an hour, something like that. Not as long as they thought. Um, I, because... Because of the Sunday night they did this, I didn't want to respond necessarily to what the Haiti team said. Everyone was pretty moved and emotional that night when they shared that story. But as they were um, in, in Matthew chapter 10, it was interesting that, that Thomas Nix, when he was, was thinking about a verse for their experience, he turned to Matthew 10, but he turned to a passage down further than the one I'm thinking of. But I want to share with you just something that I think we in Churches of Christ need to talk about just a little more. Um, the disciples knew, and Jesus was preparing them to go out and preach into these places. And remember, no one's ever heard of the gospel before. No one's ever heard of the kingdom of God before. It's all Judaism and it's other world religions. And Christianity is new on the scene. And what he knew is that Christianity would stir up some antagonism. And they would find themselves in some very hot seat places. And he wanted to give them assurance, if you get into a spot where the powers that be are against you and you're really nervous about what you're going to say, let me give you some important um, assurance and confidence before you do that. And I want you to listen to this, this particular part of the passage. On my account, verse 18, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. 
But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say, how to say it, you know, how to behave. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus talking to the apostles. He's just chosen the twelve, and he says, when you get out there, you're going to face some tough spots. When you do, the Holy Spirit will help you to determine how to behave and what to say. Is that a promise only for the apostles? This is the debate of Churches of Christ over the years, and there's plenty of people who fall on both sides of this, and you can be brothers and disagree about this. But is this a promise that just is given to the 12 apostles, and after that you're kind of on your own, or is this supposed to be kind of like, this is what one major function of the Holy Spirit is in the life of believers, that when you get in a tough spot, He gives you a sense of peace, and He'll even help you recall words that you can say. How many, if you're just going to speak off this, if you, maybe you've thought about this before, may, it doesn't matter whether you have or not, how many would say it's just for the apostles? Several that say just for the apostles. How many would say it's still part of the promise God gives to believers? Okay. And there's a bunch of you who are saying, I'm not even going to say, preacher, don't put me on the spot like this. I wonder sometimes if we think that this is like an expired promise, that the Spirit doesn't work this way, because we now live in a culture that's largely Christian, and we have been for many, many years. It's got a large Judeo-Christian background to it. If you act like a Christian in our world, most often, up until now for sure, you're going to be respected. You're not going to be harassed. You're not going to be... We, we say that every time we pray. We're grateful we aren't. So for a lot of years, it's been that way. We've never been forced in America, for the most part, to be in a spot where we have to try out whether the Spirit still works this way or not. Not many of you are ever in a spot where you're like, I don't know what to do, and I don't know what to say, I don't know what, because the pressure is on me, I've got people around me, and I've got to be able to... Not many of us do, and so <clears throat> we begin to think, you know, well, maybe this doesn't apply anymore. My argument would be, this is still a function of the Spirit for a believer, that when they are witnessing for Christ in some capacity, they are forced into a spot where there's high tension like this. And there's great pressure on them that the Holy Spirit will still give you a sense of controlling yourself, being at peace, and being able to say what you need to say. It won't spare your life any more than it did the apostles. But it will give you what you need. The He will give you what you need. What I think happened, as I listened to the story of what happened in Haiti, is that that weird sense, I say weird, that strange sense of peace that seemed to make them feel that they would be okay, as if a voice was speaking. Could that not be the Holy Spirit working in the life of a person who's there working for God, put into a high-pressure spot, and the Spirit still is partly this promise? Could that not be the case? And that would be the argument I would make. God's Spirit still has this function in the life of believers who get themselves in this spot in serving Him. And I felt blessed in hearing what they said and very affirmed. I don't want to test it myself. I kind of want to stay in the ignorant part like I, I don't know if it'll work or not. I don't know if the Spirit works like that or not because I'm not going to put myself in a spot like that. 
But I want to continue with this, and I'm going to give you an assignment, and that's really where all we're going to talk about tonight is this assignment. And that is, we, we, again, we have this Judeo-Christian background. It's almost like the incumbency of America is the Christian faith. That's kind of the background and root of the, the American experience is the Christian faith has informed everything. And even if somebody's not a Christian, they know what Christian beliefs are. They know what Christian ethics are, and people are expected to kind of still live with that order. Into a world like that, here comes the challenge. How do we make an impression on the world like this? We brought Matthew Morion in here. He talked about how we need to be people who bring the Christian faith into every conversation, every relationship, and I appreciate that, but here's the question that still remains, and this year we're going to be hammering it out. What kind of behaviors in our life will properly reflect the Christian faith and will make an impression on people to attract them to the Christian faith? We've got this instruction in the pastoral epistles that the way you live should attract people to the Christian faith to make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. That's what God wants. That's what Paul calls the pastoral people to do. And what's interesting is by the time of the pastorals, you know, the miracles have largely subsided in the sense of through people. People get uptight about me saying miracles have subsided. I'm not saying God can't do miraculous things. He can. He's going to do it however he wants to. I'm saying through a person. I don't know anybody, I've never met anybody who has the miraculous gifting like the apostles had. Have you ever met anybody like that? I'm going to venture to say no, and there must be some reason why, right? By the pastorals, those people have gone on, and now what Paul is saying is, you settle into a world where you've got to win them by your attractive life, not by some amazing, miraculous ability that you have. You have got to live in such a way that it attracts people to the faith. How can we do that? We talk about it, and we want to, and we know that the Bible calls us to this, but we all struggle with, well, how do I live an evangelistic life that attracts people to the faith? It's a great question. And here's two verses I want to share with you. Colossians chapter 4, especially the last part. And that first part is about Paul asking them to pray for him to be evangelistic. But I want you to know verse 5 is for us, right? It's for the average believer. And it says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. You're going to have various opportunities in your interaction with outsiders. Make the most of it. The most what? The, get the most benefit out of your interactions with other people that draw them to the faith. Now listen to this last one. Let your conversation always be full of grace. Uh-oh. That you may... Let me write, I'm going to get this right. Colossians chapter 2. I think the, the bottom is defunct. It's read just a moment ago. So it says, let your, season all, your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What is your question about that? That you may be able to answer each person. What question do you have about that passage? Anybody? What are they asking? 
I want to know. Uh, he says, I want you to answer it properly, meekly and uh, you know, intellectually. I want you to answer it accurately, but I want you to answer it in such a way. Answer what? What are they asking us? In the first century, I can see bunches of questions they would ask Christians. They were new on the scene. They were totally different from the people of their background. But what happens when you grew up in a Christian nation? What's anybody going to ask us? How do you live a questionable life? We are supposed to live questionable lives. How do you do that? How do you live in a way that makes people want to ask you something? That's not the only place. We've got 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. You know this one. That your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. What are they going to ask? What about how, something about the way you're living or something that you do or the way that you do it? People are going to ask you questions. Are pe- how many times have you been asked anything lately? Why do you do this? And in a country where most people are Christian, what are they going to ask you? Are they going to ask you why you go to church? No, they're not going to ask you that anymore. They either know or they don't care. What are they going to ask us? How can you live so intentionally in a different kind of life that it makes people... Or, or, or is that just for the first century and now that's not how you do evangelistic living? Is that, is that a response? That could be. You could say, you know what, nobody's asking anymore because everybody basically understands this. Listen, if you, on, on, near Christmas time, grab a pack of, uh, you get a sack of groceries and you deliver them, are people going to ask why you do that? Because there's 50 other groups who do that too. Are they going to ask you why you do that? See, like, uh, for, for the children's home, we, we approach them and say, we want to do something great for you for Christmas. And they look at us and they say, you know what? There's so much done for these kids at Christmas. Can you pick another time of the year? Everybody does it then, and everybody does it for the same, and nobody asks anymore. It's kind of like, you know, when you, if you'll just live a Christian life, people will ask you, will they? If you don't, you know, if you pretty much live a good life and you pay your taxes and, and you just live a good life, people are going to ask you why. You, no, they won't, because that's kind of the American way. It's kind of part of our American background. Let me read a description from one emperor who was um, reigning in Rome, and what he did is he wanted to bring back the pagan religions. He hated Christianity. Couldn't stand them. And so he's trying to explain how the pagan religions can overcome Christianity. And here's what he said, Emperor Julian in the year 350, okay? We must pay special attention to this point and by this means effect a cure. For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to loving them. They have gained ascendancy in the worst of their deeds through the credit they win for such practices. You know what he's saying? Christians are taking care of even pagan people who are poor and alone. And because they are, everybody respects them. And they have gained ascendancy, right? For just as those who entice children with a cake and by throwing it to them two or three times induce them to follow them, and then when they are far away from their friends, cast them on board a ship and sell them as slaves, by the same method, I say, the Galileans, Christians, 
also begin with their so-called love feast or hospitality or service of tables, for they have many ways of carrying it out, and hence they call it by many names, and the result is that they've led many people to the Christian faith. They've come along and they've acted totally different. They even take care of our poor that we neglect. And Christians in the early centuries got attention that way. And people go, why do you, li- why do, you do this? How can we live in the 21st century in such a way that causes people to ask the question so that we need to be ready to give an answer. What are the habits that should characterize our lives that are odd, odd but respectful enough in the eyes of the world that they ask us the question? Now, I'm not going to answer that now. I'm going to answer that about two weeks from now, at least give you an option, some things maybe we can do. But I want to I cause you some cognitive dissonance. I want you to have to think about this. We all know, everybody in here, that we need to live in such a way that we attract people to the faith. We know this. We know this inherently, and we've been taught this, and then we all leave and we go, how can I do that? That's what I'm asking. What are the habits, the behaviors we can put in our lives that will actually attract people to the faith? Just coming to church is not doing it. So what will do it? That's a question. One last thing to put in here is this slide about World English Institute. I want to put that on here. I hope it's in there. There is the website address. What's interesting about this is they go through all the world and they teach people English using the Bible. I've been reading these because I'm a teacher and I've led people through every one of these. Most of the time I've got about 25 students and I'll hear from them about once every week or two because they go at their own pace, and you get on there, and you study the Bible, and you study English. And I was debating, because I want to encourage every Valley View member to consider taking this course to improve your English. But, but anyway, uh, and, and your Bible along the way. But you go through this thing, and it, it's very elementary, but it's the story of Scripture, and it's a beautiful way of doing it. But along the way, you can start putting your direct objects in the right place too, right? because the English they teach. It is a very simple thing. Most, most people in America would probably answer this pretty simply, but while they're doing it, they learn the Bible story. I want to encourage you to go to this website, and I encourage you to sign up for it. Listen, you, you get sent two of these correspondence courses by email, and you fill it in whenever you want to. If you decide, I don't want to do it this week, well, don't do it this week. Do it next week. And it goes to a teacher, a teacher grades it, and most likely I'm going to try to get on there and be the teacher for you so I can then uh, preach at you what you should have gotten right. Uh, but but it go to somebody. And then I encourage you to do this. Consider becoming a teacher for this. It's all answered for you. You don't have to grade it, actually. All you have to do is look at a couple of questions that are open-ended to see that they're getting this, and then you send it on. This is sent all over the world. It's in the United States, but it's also all over the world. I've got students from everywhere, and I want to encourage you. If you're one of these people who say, you know what, I want to increase my Bible knowledge, but I don't have time on a particular night a week to have a Bible study with somebody, well, do it at your own pace. It's sitting there on your, e- your inbox somewhere. You fill this thing out. You send it in. A teacher will grade it and get it right back to you. Maybe say a comment or two. And then consider being a teacher for it all across the world or in the United States. There's not just one way that we can teach people different things. I relish the idea 
of sitting down with somebody for a Bible study discussion, actually have an old-fashioned, what they used to call cottage meetings, right? I just don't know many people who will let you get engaged in that over a long period of time without just not showing up or quitting. This is one way in our social media world. They can do it at their own pace. They can do it when they want to, and you can still be a participant one without being a direct eye contact with them at first. Eventually, you want to meet them. I just encourage you to try it and see what you think. Here's the question of the, of the next couple of weeks for you. If we're going to win a lost world around us, and I'm not talking about M Myanmar, I'm not talking about Eastern Europe or Africa, I'm talking about if we're going to win people to the gospel in Jonesboro, not drawing people from other churches here. If we're going to win people to the gospel for a first time, what are we going to need to do to make that happen? How are we going to live around the people we're living to attract them to it? What kind of habits can we actually do and incorporate that would make them ask a question and give you the opportunity to answer it? Grapple with that. Because that's how Paul saw the church starting. That's how the New Testament said, you live this way and let them ask and then you be ready to answer. And in that engagement of conversation, there you can have some discussion with them. Until they ask and wonder because they see something in you, you really don't have a shot at it. So how do we do that? How do we create the opportunity, as Paul says in Colossians, for this question to be asked so that we can answer it? I'm going to give you some suggestions in a couple weeks, but I want you to grapple with it and us to grapple with it as a church. That's my potpourri sermon. If there's anyone who for whatever reason decides, you know what, I need to obey the gospel myself. I need to respond to it. I need to get my life back right and repent of my sin. Tonight is another chance in the assembled church to be able to do that and receive the encouragement of other people and look in the face of other people. But it's always available. And if you're like so many, then you say, you know what, I could never make a move like that in assembly. Wait till everybody leaves. And we'll hang around for a while. You know why we're the last to leave? So many of the elders are the last to leave and the preachers are the last to leave. That gives you a chance to say, yeah, now I'll do it, right? So it's a good time for that too. Whatever is your need, make it known as we stand and as we sing.